You can have a seat. If you're here today and you're a military service member or you're a veteran, I would like to say personally from me to you uh, how much I appreciate um, your service and what you do. I know that there are occasions on the calendar throughout the year to say that, um, but this morning as I was reflecting on uh, the fact that today's Independence Day, I just was struck with how, what a privilege it is to be a part of a church with so many brave men and women um, who dedicate their lives to such a noble cause as serving in our military. And um, so I just want to, in a sincere way I can, express to you my appreciation for what it is that you do. I know in lots of ways it's a thankless job and it just seems totally normal to you. Um, but I, I so appreciate the fact that, that you defend and protect um, our nation that I get the privilege of living in. I grew up in a community that didn't have hardly any military presence at all and really didn't know um, anybody that was in the military. I, in fact, sort of thought of the military as a, something that you did if you were a juvenile delinquent. You need to kind of get on the straight path in life. Um, and so I now know, having been here, that um, it's a really honorable career. Um, for the best and the brightest, and so I'm really, really thankful for you and the work that you do. Um, so, so thank you very much. Um, we're going <clears> to <throat> continue our study on temptation, and I know uh, for Fourth of July, it's summertime. We've been inside for a year plus, and it seems like this is finally time to uh, let, let loose, and the last thing we want to hear is some heavy sermon uh, or some heavy summer full of sermons about sin and temptation, but that's what we've decided to do here because we don't normally go with the flow. So we're going to uh, we're going to talk about sin and temptation today, and our sermon uh, is uh, our sermon series is entitled "Forbidden Fruit." And um, and last week when we got together, we talked about uh, one component of uh, of sin and temptation that is. Uh, the inner component of sin and temptation. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Uh, but today we're going to talk about the outer component of sin and temptation. So first I want to tell you about a guy named Daniel Brandon. Daniel was an animal lover and uh, he owned a pretty impressive collection of exotic pets for nearly two decades. In all, in his bedroom at his house, Daniel kept 10 snakes and 12 tarantulas uh, there in the family home. And one of the pets was a female African rock python, eight foot long, uh, that had been his pet since the snake was small enough to fit in, in his hand. And Daniel named the snake, when he got it, Tiny, because it was appropriate for the snake at the time, but as you know, it grew a lot. According to his mom, Barbara, Daniel never ever felt threatened by Tiny, and he was aware, fully aware, of how strong Tiny was. Daniel and Tiny were affectionate with one another, um, and it sometimes even, according to what I read, they cuddled together, uh, was the word uh, that the article used. One night, she heard a bang coming from uh, his room, and she assumed that it was one of his dumbbells falling on the ground or that something had gotten knocked over, so she didn't think a lot about it. But later, she popped in to check on him, and as you might have guessed, she found her son dead. Later, she discovered that Daniel had uh, been killed, and he was on the floor in his bedroom, and she found Tiny curled and coiled under a, a cabinet in the room. The coroner came, and the coroner uh, said, quote, no doubt this death was a result of contact with the snake Tiny. 
Another snake expert who weighed in on the situation, Grant Hopkins, he said the snake, uh, th this appeared to be a tragic accident. Some animals, he said, should never be kept as pets. And he added, there's no such thing as a pet snake. They're all wild reptiles and they're all very unpredictable. And he said they're never affectionate. Why do I tell you this story? I tell you this story because this is what sin will do to you if you keep it as a pet. She, sin, will seem innocent. It will seem insignificant at first. You'll have command over her. You can hold her in your hand. But she'll slowly and patiently grow. She'll take up more and more space in your room. The changes in her size will be imperceivable to you, but others who are close to you will notice its growth. And they might even say something about it. They may subtly warn you about the dangers associated with the sins in your life, though they probably won't push too hard. You won't be alerted. You won't get a text on your phone or something in the mail when she, that is your pet sin, surpasses your strength to resist her. You won't know. It'll happen, and then one day you just won't be able to fight it anymore. There won't be any information sent to you letting you know that this is the case, that you're now not strong enough to defend against this sin. Quietly, secretly, the baton of command will be passed from you to her. It's a spiritual certainty. Sin always takes us further than we want to go. It always keeps us longer than we want to stay. It always costs us more than we want to pay. It is a spiritual certainty. You'll tell yourself from time to time in moments of clarity, I should get rid of this thing. But sin will speak up in those moments. She'll remind you of the good times you had together. She'll be very polite. She'll always encourage you. She'll tell you that you can overcome anything. She wants you to believe that you have all of the control, and she'll even tell you straight up, you have all of the control. She wants you to believe that you have the control, and she wants you to, to understand that you have the upper hand in the relationship. And then one day, one day when you least expect it, she will kill you in cold blood and coil up for a warm nap under the cabinet. I told you it wasn't going to be a light sermon. <laughs> when it comes to sin and temptation, there are two extremely powerful forces at play. Um, if you're to have any hope, any hope at all, really, for overcoming sin or overcoming temptation in your life, individual sins, things that have begun to dominate your life, habits, hang-ups, tendencies, propensities. If you're to have any measure of victory overcoming those things, you will understand these two forces. We spent time last Sunday, if you were here, we looked closely at the first force, which I'll call the inner force. Uh, the first force, but in case you weren't here, let me just kind of recap the inner force, though that's not what we're going to spend our time on today. The inner force 
is what I'll call our disgraceful desires, our disgraceful desires, the inner force. Last week, we, we learned about this inner force and the way it works in regard to sin and temptation, and we learned that we are the source of our own temptation. James teaches this straight to us. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured, baited, and enticed by his own desire. That's James chapter 1, verse 14. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. So the culprit is our own desires. The thing that lures us, the bait that dangles before us, is in conjunction with the desires that already live in us. So it's not an outside force that's tempting us so much as it is an inside force, an inner force, that is our disgraceful desires. And when we're solicited to do wrong, when somebody invites us or something tempts us to do wrong, the solicitation is only powerful, it only works because of the pre-existing disposition to that sin. We only, that, that's, that temptation is only powerful to us because we are already prone to sin in that way. In other words, we want to do wrong. Therefore, the invitation to do wrong is alluring to us. Without any desire to do wrong, temptation wouldn't have any power in our lives at all. The only reason temptation has power in our lives is because there is a pre-existing desire to do wrong. We talked about this last week in Jesus Christ's life. His temptation, as we learned last week, he was able to resist, though often we're not successful at resisting temptation. He wasn't able to resist temptation because he didn't have any desire for the pleasures that accompany sinful behavior, attitudes, and actions. In fact, we learn about Jesus in the scripture that he was fully human. In fact, the Bible tells us that he was tempted in every way, just as you and I are tempted, yet he was without sin. So the difference in us and Jesus isn't the amount of temptation, it's the proneness to sin. So tempted in every way, just as we are tempted, yet without sin, that's Hebrews chapter 4. But because he desired something more than that which he was being tempted with, the bait wasn't as desirous to him as as pleasing God was. If you're going to gain any measure of victory over temptation, you're going to love something more than you love your sin. The inner force has to be dealt with. Sin is powerful because of our inner for, the inner force to sin, our disgraceful desires. We have to deal with that. And the first part of dealing it with it, as we talked about last week, is acknowledging it. It's just agreeing with God about what he says about us already. So if you think of yourself as a person who's really good and you do good things and you're basically a good person, then you're at odds with the scriptural picture of you. Because the Bible says about you that all of your thoughts and intentions are only evil all the time. That's a direct quote from the Bible about you and about me. And so I want you to understand that if you think of yourself as a pretty good person, you think of yourself differently than God thinks of you. So If you're going to ever overcome sin and temptation, the first thing is understanding that you are most at war with your inner self, the inner force that has to be dealt with. This is called sometimes uh, our sinful nature. 
and we are born with it. It's passed down from us. It's hereditary. We get it from our forefathers and their forefathers, and it comes from our first father, Adam. We have to replace, though, how we war against sin is what we talked about last week, how Jesus warred against it with the word of God. We replace evil desires with God-honoring desires. We put off self. We put on Jesus Christ. But this week, we want to consider what God's word has to say to us so last week we talked about the, this inner force, but this week we're going to talk about the outer force. What does God's word have to say about the outer force? So we talked about our disgraceful desires already, but now I want to talk about our attentive adversary. And as we talk about these forces in the coming weeks, we'll loop back to both of these in many different ways. But I want to turn our attention to the attentive adversary now. So let's read together the passage uh, for the day. And we're really just going to look at one simple verse that's packed with helpful information about fighting sin and temptation. So we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 11 in order to read it in context. But verse 8 is our aiming point. 1 Peter chapter 5, I'll start in verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, so let me pause there. This passage of scripture is on the back end of instruction to elders. Elders are simply very mature Christians. Mature Christians that are mature enough that they can dedicate themselves to the growth of others. Okay, so, so the, the passage before this is talking to elders, and then it turns its attention to what the passage calls, what the author here calls the younger he says, likewise, to you who are younger, be subject to your elders. So what's being taught here is that if you're younger, and this doesn't just mean younger in age, uh, that you're, that you're uh, less old than, than the elders, it actually can also mean that you are less mature, you're younger in the faith. So it, it, we're instructed here, likewise, if you are younger, you who are younger in the faith or younger you should subject yourselves to those who are older, to the elders, or to the more mature. So the instruction that we get here right off the bat is, elders act in this way, and those who are younger or less mature, you subject yourself to those who are more mature. That's how the passage starts off. So the instruction here, if you, if you want to put yourself in a category, real simple category, I'm either mature enough that I help other people grow spiritually, or... I'm so immature that I need somebody to help me grow spiritually. You're, if, you're, if you find yourself in one of those two categories, you can consider yourself younger or an elder. So it says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So what we see here is that the younger person or the person who needs to grow in their faith, they subject themselves, and what they do when they subject themselves is they borrow the maturity of someone else. So when I was being discipled and I was growing up in my faith, there were men and women in my life who were older than me. Sometimes they were older in age. Sometimes they were not older in age, but they were more mature in their faith than me. And I borrowed their intuitions about how to obey God and please God. I would ask them questions. How should I live in this way? Or what should I do about this situation? And they would tell me what they believed honored God. And then I could borrow that from them and apply it to my own life. I didn't have to trust my own intuitions, my own instincts. I could borrow from the maturity of others. And so some of you, just simply as a pastoral aside here, you, you simply need to do that. You need to humble yourselves, what the passage says here, and you need to seek out somebody in your life who's more mature 
and you need to and you need to borrow their maturity and apply it to your life for some time until you become mature so that you can help others Uh, We talked about this in the early service today, and then when people were exiting today, and I was talking to people, two people stopped and asked me, "Can, can somebody in this church help me do that? I need to borrow some maturity. So some of you may need to do that today. You may need to, you may need to just humble yourselves and subject yourselves and say, somebody help me connect with somebody more mature than me so that I can overcome some of these sins that dominate my life. So verse 6 tells us, humble ourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, that we in the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So what we do in in the situation when we find ourselves young and immature is we humble ourselves, we cast our anxiety to God, and we subject ourselves to the maturity of others because he cares for us. But then the real instruction of this passage about how to fight sin and temptation is there for us. Verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. That same sin and temptation that you are experiencing has been experienced by Jesus Christ, who was tempted just as you are, yet was without sin, and is experienced by your brothers throughout the world. You are not alone is what this is saying. When you go through a difficult time, it's always helpful to know you're not alone in it, right? You have a brother in Jesus Christ who has suffered with the same temptations that you have, yet is without sin, and you have literal brothers and sisters around the world that have suffered in these same ways and are suffering in these same ways as you are. You are not alone. Verse 10, and after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the glory and dominion forever. Amen. So there's, there's so much information in this one verse, verse 8, that I think we just have to zoom in right there on verse 8. Every word is power-packed and God-breathed, helpful for us to gain wisdom about how to battle sin and temptation in our own lives. There are five particular pieces of information in this one verse uh, about sin and temptation that are, that are just sort of tucked in here that I think we should pull out, look at for just a second, and then put back. Okay, here, here are those five things. First, before we get to them, uh, uh, Sun Tzu, who was an ancient Chinese military strategist and philosopher who many of you probably are familiar with, in his famous book, The Art of War, he said, uh, if, you, if you know your enemy and you know yourself— you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. He says the key to engaging in battle is understanding yourself and understanding your enemy. And I think that is a good summary of what we're going to learn in this, this verse in 1 Peter 5, 8, because it's about knowing ourselves and it's about knowing who our enemy is and what he's capable of. That's the essence of what Peter's saying here in this verse. Know your enemy, know yourself. He starts with knowing ourselves So the first instruction for outwitting Satan in the uh, outer force of temptation that we get in our life, not the inner desires that we have, but the outer force of temptation that comes into our life, the first way that we war against that is uh, is, uh, against our attentive adversary, our adversary who's watching us closely, is we become sober-minded. So the the text says it right there in verse 8. Be sober-minded. So... What's it mean to be sober-minded? We know what sobriety is. We think about sobriety 
a, a fair amount, we, we understand it means a pretty, it's a pretty square box for us. It means to be free from intoxicating influences. If you're here this morning and you're sober, um, you are not under the influence of drugs or alcohol. Uh, so you are clear-minded. Sober-mindedness is, a, is, a, is the New Testament's way of saying to us that we are free from the intoxication or the intoxicating influences of the world. In other words, you, you see things as they truly are. Because when we're sober, we see reality. When we're not sober, when we're intoxicated, reality is distorted. So to be sober-minded in spiritual terms means that we see things as they truly are. Instead of seeing them through the lens, the lenses of culture or our own intuition. You, in other words, you, you see things the way God sees them. You see the world in the way that God sees the world. Another way of saying this is that you adopt or you take into yourself the, um, the views of God as your own. Even if they're out of sync with your own instincts, your own intuitions, and your own cultural understanding. So this is really important for us to understand that sober-mindedness is the same as biblical obedience. So when, when we're told to be sober-minded, we're told to view things in the way of reality, to view things the way God sees things. See, we're told that our, our intuitions and our views of reality are, are distorted and skewed. Remember, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to destruction. Remember that there are spiritual forces going on in the heavenly places that we don't know about. There are things happening all around us. There are reasons and motives and intentions that are happening in our lives that we don't know anything of. The only way for us to truly know what is up and down, the only way to be hinged is to look to God and ask him what in the world is going on around me. We can't trust ourselves. And I don't know about you, but I trust myself so much and it's crazy, too, because the trajectory of my life is that I trust myself and then I let myself down. And, and yet, I continually go back and trust myself over again and again. I will trust myself over somebody on TV, somebody on the internet. I will trust myself over a perceived expert. I trust myself more than anybody else. My wife will tell me something, and I, I trust my own instincts above her words. Even if she knows something, that, even if we're talking in a category I know she knows about. You know, uh, every time I try to learn something new from an instructor, somebody who's smart and educated and learned on a subject, they say something and I question it in my own mind. Oh, could that really be true? Who am I to question those things? The, the, the truth is I don't have any way of telling what is true and what is false. The only way I have to do that is to go to God in his word. This is how we see Jesus war against sin and temptation too, right? We saw him tempted last Sunday when we talked about his temptation. And he's back to the word at every temptation. Back to God's word. Believing God. Trusting God to see things the way they are. Because when the chaos of this life happens and the influence of this world become part of our daily lives, we can't tell which way is up and which way is down. So, 
What does this mean when it comes to sin and temptation, that we should be sober-minded? Well, some of your translations might say, keep your head, instead of saying sober-minded. Or it might say, keep your mind clear. Or it might say, exercise self-control. Well, that's because the, the idea in this text, in the original language, the idea that's conveyed is the idea of controlling our intuitions, harnessing our intuitions, pressing them down, and trusting God instead. So to be sober-minded is to believe God. So when we're told in this passage that we're to be sober-minded and that will help us resist the the devil and flee from sin, when we're told that, it's just like we're being told to trust God and not ourselves. So this is what it means. We will include ridding ourselves from the intoxicating influences of this world And I just want to ask you to consider or think about what would it look like to rid yourself of worldly thinking in regard to the sin or temptation that most grips you. Like how how is your mind influenced, tarnished, drawn into sin and temptation by the way you see the world? And, And in what ways are you disagreeing with God? What would, what would it look like for you to sober up? You know, what would it look like for you to, to just agree with God about what that is? How would your mind change if you agreed with God? To lay off of those influences that intoxicate you, to stay away from them, those things that render you helpless to the tempter. So the first instruction is to be sober-minded. The second instruction is to be watchful. So this is the know-yourself part of it, to be watchful. Uh, Peter warns us to be watchful, vigilant. He says, don't fall uh, asleep in the room with the snake. He's saying, don't cuddle with a snake. (laughs) That's stupid. Well, maybe he's not saying that. Maybe I'm saying that. But we should not put ourselves in a position where it's easy for the enemy to tighten his grip on us. Watch out. Be on guard. And and really this on guard, uh, this unguardedness uh, comes about when we we start to understand the severity of our sin in our own lives, in the lives of others. The truth is we don't think our sin is really going to kill us because we're more concerned about physical life than we are spiritual life. We're not, we're not very concerned about what sin might do to us or might do to our family, so the consequences don't seem that great or that high, but the stakes are high. You're taking your eye off of the enemy for just a moment. There, it could be the difference in, in spiritual life and spiritual death for you to become entrapped, ensnared are the words the Bible uses in a sin that entangles you and keeps you away from the abundant life that Jesus desires for you. Jesus addresses this issue directly in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew, starting in Matthew chapter 5. And he says right there in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. You guys are familiar with that. And it seems like hyperbole to us. It's so strong, such strong language. But, but it could be an indication that Jesus takes our sin way, way, way more seriously than we do. 
because Jesus understands the true consequences of our sin in a way that we don't understand the true consequences of our sin. So, could be the difference in spiritual life or death for you, for you to be watchful, to pay attention, to be careful. Jesus addresses this directly, like I said, when he, when he says, cut off your hand or pluck out your eye. He goes on to say, it'd be better for, uh, well, you, you know the passage. Let's, uh, I, won't, I, won't, I won't go off the grip there. Um, Peter finishes this, this section where, he, where he's, he talks first about us being watchful and being sober-minded. He finishes this section and he uh, punctuates his instruction to us here by unmasking the true villain. So we talk about the, the who behind the temptation now. He tells us exactly what we're up against and he, and he calls him, look there in the passage, he calls him your adversary, your opponent is another word, the devil. So don't be deceived. This life is war. What we're doing right now in spiritual terms, how we're living, it is war. We are at war. We're at war with our inner self, as we talked about already, and we're at war with our tempter, with the devil. He's out to get you. He's against you. And it seems like, it seems like you know, old, old grumpy spirituality for somebody to get up in a pulpit and say, hey, uh, there's a devil out there who's out to get you. It's not, it's not, though. This is an active truth from God's Word that is there for us to read and understand about ourselves. You're always at war. You're always at war with sin, and you're only as strong as you are to stand against sin at your weakest moment. It's not a passive attack that's coming against you from the enemy, according to the Scripture. It's not, it's not lighthearted. It's not a passive attack, but it's a coordinated and thorough attack by a skilled enemy. In a book I'd, I'd really highly recommend to you if you're given to reading really old books by really dead Puritan pastors, you should read a book by a guy named John Owen called The Mortification of Sin. Isn't that a great title? That would probably be a bestseller if we had it come out today, right? Uh, the Mortification of Sin. In that book, John Owen writes, uh, he writes this. He says, do you mortify? He's asking the, the sinner um, who wants to be obedient to God, who wants to live a life that pleases God. He's asking the question, do you mortify? Do you kill? He says, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work to kill? Be always at it as long as you live. Cease not a day from this work of killing. He says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. There is no neutrality in regard to our life of sin and temptation. We are either actively fighting against sin and temptation. We are, we are preparing ourselves by being sober-minded, agreeing with God and being vigilant to, to watch after the tempter or... We've got our guard down, and we've given way. So, in the mortification of sin, he says, be killing sin, or it will be killing you. So, who is this external force, this adversary? According to the passage, it's, it's the devil. Now, if you're like me, this is where the intoxicating influence of the world enters in, when I say the phrase, the devil or Satan. Actually, I don't know if you feel this way, but me, even as a preacher, when I say the, the, the term devil or Satan, I, I, I feel silly. I do. I feel like I, I'm talking about something that most of the world thinks is absurd. 
And so I feel the, the pressure of worldly influence on that. Like God's word plainly tells me the devil exists and that the devil does this work and that he's actively after me. Yet I read it and I feel like, oh, I shouldn't say that. Why do I feel that way? I feel that way because of the influence of this world that has told me I'm intoxicated even as a preacher of the gospel whose life is dedicated to the preaching of the message of the Bible, even as a person who does that, I feel the intoxicating pressure of this world, and you do too. We are tempted to believe that Satan isn't real, that he doesn't exist, and he's not pettying in our life. He is. And, and according to Jesus, what he's doing in our life is far more significant than we think, and the stakes are far higher than we believe. Really, the devil this is exactly, though, the tactic that Satan wants to use in our lives to convince us that he doesn't exist and that thinking he does exist is just silly. He's undermining God and his word and authority by causing his own existence into question. It's craziness. I mean, but he's undermining God's authority in the same way that he did in the Garden of Eden. We said, did God really say that? Now, last week after the service, um, one of the Marines here asked me a really, really good question, and I want to address that question. Uh, she asked, is, is Satan omnipresent? And uh, the answer to the question is absolutely no. Satan's not omnipresent. And it, it could seem, I thought it was a good question, because, and one I didn't think to address, because we could think, well, like, is Satan, like, himself present and active in our individual lives? Uh, is he... Is he is he watching after each one of us in this sort of prowling kind of way? And the answer is no. Satan's an, a finite creature. Ezekiel teaches us about Satan's origins. Satan was created by God, though originally good. He was created good for good purposes. And, and he rebelled against God. He sinned. He turned away. Um, and, and so he was originally intended to... Uh, for good. He was originally made good. So Satan, though, is a created thing. He's a created being. He, and as such, he has limited capacity. Only God is omnipresent. That's one of his immutable qualities. So God is omnipresent. Satan's not omnipresent. So, so the scripture teaches us we learn about God's omnipresence, like in Psalm 139, and we know that, that, um, that Satan's power is limited. We also know from the book of Job that, that Satan's got some impressive skills that humans don't have. Uh, for example, he can go uh, about, he can roam about heaven and on earth. We learned that in Job. He can apparently get around pretty quickly and easily too. So he has some kind of, uh, uh, some kind of travel method that's a little enhanced from ours. But he is uh, not omnipresent nonetheless. He's not everywhere at the same time in the same way that God is. So in that way, think about the advantage that we have. Like the Spirit of God, according to, uh, to, to God's Word, lives and manifests and, and is manifested in, in presence with you all the time. The Spirit of God lives with you. We have God's Word with us. We have God's people with us. We have the ability to fight against Satan with some of the most powerful tools and weapons that we could ever have. But that doesn't mean that Satan isn't present and he isn't influential and he doesn't have some command over our lives. We know that. Don't let, don't let the fact that he's not omnipresent fool you. His agents and his influence are all around us. He's got embassies and advocates all over the place. They're in your home. They're in your school. They're in your job. They're even in your pocket on your cell phone. Uh, Satan's influences are, uh, should, should not be um, 
under, uh, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't look at them as, as small and not significant because he's not omnipresent. He is a very present, a powerful presence in our life. The fourth phrase that I want you to see out of this, this one verse is not just who Satan is, who it is that's our adversary, but what he does. It says that he prowls around like a roaring lion. I, that is a vivid word. Uh, prowling is a vivid word. I mean, all of us have pretty much the same picture in our mind right now of, of prowling around like a roaring lion. Prowl literally means in, scriptural, in the scripture, it literally means to make use of an opportunity. So what this means is that Satan's work in our life is to make use of opportunities. Well, you combine this with the knowledge that we got from like uh, last week where the desires are actually inner desires. So the picture is this. That, that our, our adversary, our enemy, he has a beat on you and what sins and tendencies you are most prone to fall to. And he's watching for an opportunity in our lives, which is a pretty powerful picture. He's not just in a very blanket way trying to tempt everyone in the same way all the time. He's got a custom set of temptations for you, and he's looking for the moments of vulnerability and weakness in your life in order to present those opportunities to you. So even the shrewdest of Christians who wants to war against Satan will find that at times in his weakest moments, his enemy, his adversary is there offering, offering a worldly solution. So he prowls around like a roaring lion. He's attentive. You may not be attentive to Satan. You may not even think he exists, but he's attentive to you. He's watching. He's paying attention according to God's word. He prowls around like a roaring lion. He's got power. He, he's powerful. He can, he, can, uh, he can destroy us when we fall prey to him, but he's, he's looking for the moment of opportunity. He prowls around like a roaring lion. And the sixth thing, the last thing, I, or the fifth thing, last thing I want you to see in that text is that he's seeking somebody to devour. This is, this is, um, this is what you need to know about the work that Satan's actively doing in your life. It, it, it has a simple aim, to kill you spiritually. He's, he's trying to snuff out all spiritual vitality from your life. Like in, in the, in, if, you're, if your spiritual life were depicted in a physical life, how healthy are you? Uh, well, this is, this is the picture of just, just somebody who is, who is really not well. And, and Satan's not okay with that. He's not going to leave us there in that not well position. He wants us dead spiritually. He wants us beyond resuscitation spiritually. He's working to snuff out the light of the gospel in our life. Remember last week, if you were here last week, we talked about the the flame that Jesus Christ is fanning on the other side of the wall, the oil that he's pouring to continue to stoke the fire of passion for Jesus in our lives. So, so there is an active adversary on the outside who is working to, working to destroy us, to take apart our life, and there is a, a war going on within us, an inner, an inner desire for those sins, but just in the same way as that, 
there is a God, a Jesus, who loves us, who is advocating for our success against sin and Satan and temptation, and is not just advocating for it from the sidelines, but is standing by offering himself as a substitution for our weaknesses and hang-ups. The scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians that God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to become sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And isn't that incredible that, that even though we are tempted to sin, both from inner forces and outer forces, and God gives us all the tools and resources to fight against that sin and to prevail. Remember, there's no sin that uh, has been given to us that we can't overcome with the resources that God provides to us. Those, those resources have been given to us and we still have fallen prey to them. And yet, even in that, God offers Jesus to us. First John chapter 2, we're, we're, we're told really plainly that we're, the, the, the scripture is written to us so that we might not sin. But if we do sin, that we have an advocate with the Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is such, beautiful, uh, such a beautiful message for us. People who fill up this room. People who are, who are trying but failing. Who are attempting to please God but constantly coming short. Who are aiming at the mark but almost never hitting it. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And what you have to see about yourself is that in your life, the hero of the story is not you if you overcome sin. The hero of the story always is Jesus who overcame sin for us. And we are invited into his family by humbling ourselves, putting ourselves in submission to him under the mighty hand of God confessing our sins to him, asking him to forgive us from our sins, and seeking to walk a spirit-filled life of righteous living before him as we, as we go on. But Jesus is the one who fuels and empowers all of it, both when we are fighting sin and temptation and after we've succumbed to it, he's our rescuer. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we come these truths. This is amazing. No one is as merciful as you. We who rejected you and turned our backs on you over and over, not just early in life, but even after you forgave us and we, we asked you to forgive us, we still fall short. We still make bad decisions. Then, Even then, God, you offer the merciful gospel of Jesus Christ to us. You have you have been for us an advocate. You are standing with us as an advocate before the Father right now, and we want you to know that we acknowledge that. We love you, God. We need you to fight sin and temptation here in this life. We pray, God, that you would give us the grace that we need uh, to make it through this life that's full of struggles and difficulty. God, we heed your warnings this morning to be sober-minded and watchful. God, help us to, to understand the severity, to get a sense of the severity of our sin, the havoc that it wreaks on our families and on our own souls and on those around us. God, would you, would you give us victory in your son Jesus over our sin and temptation? God, help us to be a joyful people focused on helping others be relieved and released from the power of sin and Satan. 
God, we want you to know that we disagree with the world, the world that says that Satan's not real, and it's okay to give way to our desires, that tells us that we are the center of the universe. We reject that thinking as ungodly and worldly. We refuse to be intoxicated by it anymore, and we tell you that we love you and we trust your word. And so, God, would you... Would you fill us with your spirit? Would you give us your word? Would you help us to strengthen each other as we acknowledge our dependency on you? In Jesus' name we pray and for your glory alone.